The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, well, good evening, everyone. Last week, we were in the book of 1 Peter, and we found Peter commanding very clearly to God's people that we must be holy because our God is holy. I wonder if there's any chance that those words from the Word of God impacted your life this week. There are a lot of times that I, I listen to or I preach a sermon, and even as I listen to it, I say amen, and it's good, and, and I, don't, I don't usually say amen very loudly, but I really appreciate those of you that do. Um, but a lot of times you, you get into the Word, and it's true, and you know it's true, and then it's so quickly forgotten. But it was kind of neat this week that for some reason my mind kept going back to that statement, be holy because I am holy. And it made me examine my life and say, what areas of my life are really not holy? How am I not living the life that is representative of my Father in heaven as his child? And so it was wonderful to have that happen. And this next statement, these next verses in this sermon tonight, hopefully will help us to understand exactly how we do that a little bit better. Okay, the people of God must understand that it is a privilege, the greatest privilege all the universe has to offer to be called sons and daughters of God. What we have, we can't begin to place a value on. We can't begin to be thankful enough to appreciate our salvation and our standing before God as sons and daughters enough, as as princes and princesses of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We We can't get it. And so our question then must be, if we if we begin to understand this, if we if we just have this small shadow of what we will someday fully understand in heaven. How can we become the people that God wants us to be? It's one thing to make a decision. It's one thing to to say amen and to agree with something. It is a completely different thing to then say, now what must I do to be holy? Now what must I change in my life so that my character matches my God's character? And so tonight, as believers continue to speak to, as Paul, Paul, as Peter continues to speak to the believers scattered around the first century Roman world, I think he helps us to understand how to answer that question for our everyday lives. So we'll begin reading back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and we'll read the verses from last week because it's all one paragraph, and then we'll continue this week, starting specifically at verse 22. Verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Peter says, if you are a child of God, then act like it. You are no longer ignorant. Your God is holy. His precious blood was spilt to redeem you. And one day you will stand before him. So if you are a child of God, then act like it. Verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Peter says, seeing now that we have obeyed the truth through the Spirit. A lot of people wonder exactly what this means because the, the idea of obedience seems to imply a set of works. But let's, let's understand what he is saying we're supposed to obey. We're supposed to obey the truth. So it's not a set of commands, a, a, a standard of living that we must obey. It is the truth. And here he's speaking about the truth of the gospel. We've obeyed the truth in the, in the Spirit. Because of what the Spirit has done, what the Spirit has taught us and accomplished in our lives, we have been able to understand and believe the gospel. So now that you are believers, now that you have faith, now that you've, you've believed and obeyed the gospel, he says we are now purified to something. We're purified to do something. And I think if we were to look at this first, we'd say, oh yeah, no, I, I know why I'm saved. I'm saved so that some, one day I can go to heaven. I'm saved for that first 10,000 years. And, and I'm saved for the second 10,000 years. And the 10,000 after that, and after that, right? If we were to give a list of reasons why we're saved, I don't think the reason he gives would be really high up on that list. I'm saved so one day I can be with my family, my, my loved ones forever. I'm sa- saved so that one day I can see the face of God. But here, it's, it's funny what he say, says we're saved to, what we're saved for. Now, I, I understand that all of those other answers, they're good answers, and they're true. We are saved for the glory of God. But here, the reason he gives that we're saved is that we're saved for the love of the brethren, so that to love the brethren. And the word here that he uses is Philadelphia. So it's this brotherly type of love that we're supposed to have for, the, for brothers and sisters in Christ. This is really important for us to understand because we're not just saved and then from that point we choose exactly what we want to do, but you know, now we have the insurance. We're saved to something. And already we're saved to something that's going to require something of ourselves. Because he goes on from we're saved to brotherly love, he explains exactly what that's supposed to look like. He says, so see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. That time he uses the word love, he uses the word agape. He says, see that you sacrificially love one another with a pure heart, so without any type of selfish motives, without any uh, ulterior reasons, make sure that the love that you're showing to each other within this church, to brothers and sisters in Christ, is a love that's characterized by passion, fervency, that's characterized by selflessness, 
that's characterized by self-sacrificing. That's a pretty tall command. But that's what we've been saved to do, right? And so he has just already loaded up all the motivations we have to be holy and to live like God wants us to do. Now he's going to start explaining how we do that, what we're saved to do, and then he's going to explain where we learn to do that in. And so he goes in verse 23. He starts to explain where we find all these things. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Peter begins with this analogy of of us being born again. Christ introduced it in John chapter 3. We have been born again, born of the Father, not of corruptible seed, not like any man's child would be born. Like any, any time that anything temporal has a seed that is born, yes, life is given, and that life grows, but eventually all of those things die. Right? Any, any brand new baby that looks like they're full of life, I hate to break this to you, but it doesn't last forever. Right? Any tree that grows, it, it, I mean, it buds up in this, this potential for this wonderful life is ahead of, it, ahead of it, but over time, you see that tree grow to maturity and then start to age and then eventually die. And he's saying that the way that we are born, it's not of corruptible seed, like any apple tree like any person, like anything that, that grows and lives, eventually decays, corrupts, and dies. It's not that type of seed. It is incorruptible seed. It is, it is the seed that only God can produce. It lives and it abides forever. Verse 24, he explains this a little bit. He says, For all flesh is grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Here he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. And so I went back and I read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, and and it's almost a direct quote, except for in in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7, There's one little phrase that Peter leaves out. So I'm going to read Isaiah 40, verse 7. He says, The grass withers, the flower thereof fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth it. Surely the people is grass. The part that that he missed, or not that he missed, but that he chose to leave out, was that the reason the grass withers and the reason the flower fades is because God blows on it. I mean, mean, the breath of God is what extinguishes it, essentially. And and the point the author is making is that there is one word where God speaks something that is eternal, that is everlasting, that never fades, that never falls, his word. And everything else, by the decree of himself, will fade away and die. And, And so what we see here is this picture of a God who is so in control of everything... And we have this picture of a God who has said, this is the thing that will last forever. And everything else I will blow away. Everything else will corrupt. Everything else will end. Every other philosophy will fall short. It will, it, it will become uncool. It's amazing how you can live. We were in a class a couple weeks ago. We're doing the pride training for CAS. Maybe eventually we'll do adoption. That's our thought. But... Um, we're doing this training, and 
it's funny how, for a long time, the conversation revolved around the fact that, that in previous generations, this is what they thought. And the whole thought process was, how could anybody ever think something so crazy? And so I, I put my hand, I was like, do, do we realize that, like, all we think is basically what our, what our generation says is right? And, like, 50 years from now, they're going to say, how could anybody ever think what we think about parenting? Right? We have all of these philosophies and all of these truths, all, all these people trying to tell us that they've discovered the new thing that should guide and, correct, and direct your life. And every single time, that philosophy falls short. It proves itself to be untrue. The, the, the philosophy of the world is constantly proving itself to be untrue. And so what do they do? They, they constantly find Band-Aids. The Band-Aids never work. At best, they cover symptoms for a while while the problem just grows underneath. It is, it is terrible when you think of what, what philosophy is there to follow. What man or woman has all of the answers? None. And so he says there is one word that lives forever, that abides forever, and that's the word by which you were saved. One thing remains, the word of God. Let's get into 1 Peter chapter 2. Wherefore, verse number 1, wherefore, because there is one word that lives and abides forever and everything else is grass and it's perishing and it's falling away and it's fading, everything else is dying, we should lay aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Wherefore, we should change our lives. Wherefore, we should be different. See, there's a pattern here in the book of 1 Peter. He gives us motivation after motivation after motivation, and then he gives us action. He gives us indicatives, and then he gives us imperatives. What has been done for us, and then what we must do, or how we ought to respond to the grace of God. You have the words of God that will never fail, that someone brought to your ears. You realize how blessed you are? Do you realize how blessed we are to sit in a church where the word of God is proclaimed openly over and over again every time the doors are open? And when we, if we would just step back for a moment and consider the scope of the world and the people in the world, that have the privilege that we have to have the access to the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. I mean, it is phenomenal what kind of blessings that we experience every day. And we just take them for granted. And so he says, wherefore, because you have that, things should be changing in your life. Why is it that we're content not to change? Why do we think that some of this is kind of optional? Like, it's, it's not really a big deal. It absolutely is a big deal. Every person who names the name of Christ is an ambassador of Christ. And so we all need to take this, this duty, this privilege, seriously. Here he says we should lay aside all malice. The word malice is kakia, which is badness. I don't know if you can get more all-encompassing term of evil, but it, it's literally badness. We should lay aside badness. I mean, anything evil, anything wicked, just put that aside. Put that out of your life. Hey, get rid of badness. 
He says, we got to get rid of guile, which is deceit, in our behavior and in our words. Get rid of deceit. Hypocrisies. Let's stop pretending to be someone we're not. Let's believe the truth and then act like it. Why don't we try and maybe allow our lives to match our profession of faith? Let's stop with the stained glass masquerade. You know, I was thinking about how you can live the Christian life. And there's, there's really two ways that you can kind of come to church and, and do church. I'm, I'm sure there's more than two ways, but there's two ways that I think a lot of us do it. It's either we come to a place trying to convince everybody that we care about them, right? That we really love them, that we love God, that we're here to worship. And, 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 and so we spend our time and our energy and our effort trying to put on this masquerade so that Everybody else thinks we're, we're feeling and doing what a Christian is supposed to feel and do. Or we can actually just love God and love people. Right? And not even worry about what people are seeing. Not, not even worry about how we're coming off to people. I think maybe it would be better and certainly a lot easier, uh, uh, a lot more Christian, to just try and like love God and love people. I feel like eventually if we did that, then we'd accomplish the same thing it would just be a lot better because we wouldn't be pretending all the time, right? But we pretend so much. And so get rid of the hypocrisy. Get rid of the pretending we believe stuff that we don't really believe or that we certainly don't act like we believe. He says, get rid of the envy. This is the wicked desire for stuff that's not yours. And, and, and the, word, the word envy is lumped with a, a whole lot of really bad sins in different places in the Bible. And you wonder why desiring something that's not yours is really that bad. I mean, somebody has a super nice car and you're just envious of the car. You want that car so bad. But the idea of envy is it goes beyond just like, oh, that's nice. It's, it's to the point of like, I wish that person didn't have it. And so when you're envying, you've taken your eyes off of every good gift God has given you. You're no longer thankful because all you want is something you don't have. When you're envying, all you're doing is focusing on gifts and not the giver. When you're envying, you're actually wanting evil for the other person. And so we can see when we actually dig into the heart of envy, that envy is a pretty serious sin. It seeks joy in gifts rather than the giver. It focuses on all the wrong things. It's, it's just selfish. It is, it is me, me, me. I want, I want, I want, and that's really what matters. It's a difficult thing to, to teach human beings, and it's funny because as you raise kids, you get to see, like, very clearly how the hearts of people are, right? And how difficult is it for you to give a bike to one of your kids and then have all of the others rejoice to know that their sister or brother got a new bike without getting them one of them themselves, right? Isn't that just a, our hearts naturally? Like, somebody gets something new, so I want one new. You know, pastor got a new chair, so I want a new chair. That's kind of how we function. He didn't get a new chair. No, I got a new chair, actually. <laughs> his, is, his is terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, but really, that's, that's what it is. We're sinful people. And so let's try and get rid of the envying. And finally, he says, evil speakings. That's another all-encompassing word here that speaks for itself. Any of the gossip, the hurtful words, the idle words, the words that are used to stir up hatred and conflict, the filthy language. I mean, evil speaking. 
if, if we could, as believers, see the, the gifts that we have and say, therefore, I'm going to try and live out some of this, we would be so much better off. So what Peter does, very kindly, is he helps us to understand where we learn to live the Christian life like this. He says in verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be that you have tasted the Lord is gracious. Here is what you need to grow. If you hear, be holy for God is holy, Love your brother. That's what you're called to do. If you hear, change your life. Try to get rid of the badness. And you wonder exactly how am I going to do that? He gives us the answer. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. Just like babies need milk from their mother, we have a desperate need for spiritual milk, the word of God. Anybody who's raised a child, they they understand this desperation that it seems like a baby has for milk. Like it comes to a point when a soother will no longer do. It doesn't matter how funny the dad's face is or how silly the sounds he's making. It just, it doesn't capture their attention because they have one thing on their mind, one thing they need. And they desperately need milk. They need food. They need something to, to sustain them and to grow and, and babies just naturally have this desperate need. And you know what? As human beings, even as adults, we understand this desperate need for food. Like, I haven't eaten in 15 minutes. I'm, I'm ready, <laughs> right? We don't let ourselves miss a meal. Our body's just, boom, it's time, right? And then, like, halfway before it's actually time, it's time again. That, that's how we function. We, are, we take such good care of our flesh, and we think so little about our spiritual lives. But in, in the realm of eternity, this is the body that dies, the one that I'm so concerned with feeding all the time. And, and the, the soul, the spirit that lives forever, is the one that I can feed spiritually in the word of God. But do we take the time for that? Not, not often enough. Babies are hungry because without food they will wither and die. Believers must be hungry for the word. They must desire it. They must long for it. They must crave it. Why don't we put some of the energy we used to put into our sin, into our spiritual health? Maybe if we started feeding ourselves spiritually, we'd find the battles a little bit easier with temptation and lust and and laziness and, and all of those things. And then he ends in verse 3 on this bombshell, he says, if so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And what he's saying is, this should be happening in your life if you've actually tasted the grace of God. If you know the grace of God, if you are a believer in Christ, if that part is true for you, that you're born again, then you're a baby that should naturally desire the sincere milk of the word. But if you find yourself never desiring anything from the word of God, that there's no desire for the sincere milk of the word, do you know what he's saying there is? Maybe you've never tasted grace. Maybe you've never tasted the grace of God. Because if you have tasted the grace of God, that this is what naturally should be occurring in your life. Now, I'm not saying it's not a struggle. I, I just explained to you some of my own struggles right? So I know that there's this flesh that is battling against you all the time, but if there's never a battle going on, 
Like there's never a desire to grow spiritually. There's never a desire to please the Lord. That is when we have real reason to be concerned. Okay? We should have tasted the grace of God. And when you taste the grace of God and you know how good it is, then you want more and more of it. And you realize that it's, it's the word of God that God has given to, to give us grace in our life through, through our lives. We need that grace. And so what I want to do with our last few moments together is give us three lessons from our text regarding the believer's relationship to God's word. The first one is this. We must esteem the word highly. We must esteem the word highly. We must think very, very highly of God's word. I fear that the commonality of God's word has bred indifference toward it. Because it's so common, because it's everywhere, because we have it in our phones and our tablets and our computer screens and our calendars and, and every place you look, you got on your pictures. You know, everybody's got like five copies or more in their house. And then we have uh, books and books and books and books that are designed to explain exactly what's going on. We have so much access to the Word of God that it's so common and we just don't see it as something precious and amazing and incredible. It's just there all the time, right? This happens with, with, with just about everything that we first understand as being incredible. It's there beside you constantly, and it's like, nah, now it's just normal. Now it's no biggie. Yeah, but it is. Because it's the eternal word of God. It is the one thing that lives and abides forever. Right? We have lost our awe of it. I know this because I know that in my own life, this is a battle. It is a constant battle to retain the awe of God's word. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, To me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice. And I do not hear it without awe. That's good. Yeah, uh, the Bible isn't God, okay? But the Bible does reveal God. It is God's word. What we know about God, what we know about ourselves, is clearly seen in the pages of this book. And so the Bible is God speaking, and every single time we hear it, we should be in awe of it. That's so foreign to how we think, but it's, it, it's it, I mean, when you actually consider what we're holding in our hands, that should be the natural response. If you could have any, any religion in the past, if you could take any single person and say, hey, what if your God Zeus came down and spoke to you? What would those words that he spoke mean to you? Can you imagine what the answer would be? Can you imagine how much they would, how highly they would esteem every single word that came from Zeus's mouth? And we're talking about these false gods, and here we have the living, the, the God of creation, the only living God, who has spoken His word. We have His word written down for us, and we become so accustomed to it. We have no awe of it. We don't esteem it highly. We instead constantly amuse ourselves with the most recent philosophies. The most recent best-selling Christian book. Right? We eat them up. We figure this is the book. This new one that just came out by my favorite author. It's the book that's really going to help me understand my wife. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> or my husband. Or my children. My teenagers. Right? This, is, this book is really going to help me understand how I'm supposed to live this life. 
going to help me understand how I'm supposed to succeed at my job or, or what I should do. I mean, we, we get these books, and I'm not against Christian books. You should know that if you look at my library. I'm certainly not. But what we do is we run to them first. Do you realize that this is the book that's going to help us understand our wives and our husbands and our children and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? This is really the book. And the best that any other book can do is help us to see something that's in here more clearly. There's a, a book called The Jesus Calling. It's written by Sarah Young. And it sold 15 million copies. That's a lot of, that's a lot of copies. It's one of the Christian bestsellers. And, and Sarah Young's story is that she asked God to speak to her, and he did. She decided that rather than just going to prayer and praying to God, she would sit in silence and let God speak to her. And so she let God speak to her, and then she wrote down what she thought he was saying to her. And, and she did make the point that like, what God says to her won't be different than what's in his, in his word. But essentially what he's saying is, the mess- what she's saying is the message that's in the Bible is not enough that I need to, God to speak to me in a different way, in a way that maybe I deem more helpful or more clear or, or whatever it is. Do you know what God said? God said that he'll, he, he wrote his word down for us, that he does speak to us, but he's not speaking to us in this like, oh, God, oh, I think, I, I think I'm getting a message from you. He's speaking to us and we've got a message. It's right here, Okay. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It's the, the Bible that is um, able to make us perfect unto every good work. The Bible is the thing that is able to mature us. The Bible is the thing that's going to help us grow. And so we don't need all of this new revelation that people seek. We don't need this most recent philosophy. What we need is the Word of God. We should be enthralled by the fact that we have the word of God. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Psalm chapter 119, 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. In John, John 1, 1, we find that in the beginning was the word. Here we have the Bible that was, it predates creation. And it will last forever. We have this eternal word of God. That's what we hold here. And so let's esteem it highly. Every bit of this world's wisdom will someday be gone. God's word will stand. So do you recognize the treasure that you hold in your hand? Do you recognize the treasure that we we take for granted all the time? Number one, we must esteem the word highly. Number two, we must desire the word intensely. We must desire the word intensely. And this, I believe, flows very naturally from number one. If we esteem the word highly, we should and we ought to and we probably will desire it intensely. When you see something for how beautiful it is, then you want that thing and you need that thing. We must understand this. It is from our amazement of the word of God that will flow our love of it and our desire for it. You realize that God's word is for you. It's not just for something to preach out of on Sunday morning or Sunday evening. It's not just for those devotional books. It is for you in your life. 
God's word will help us through the troubles of life. It will help us through the temptations of life. It will help us through the pain. It will help us through the suffering. It will help us through all of the unknown times, the times that we have to make a decision. God's word will help us through every aspect of our lives. It's for us. It unveils for me the character of God, the goodness of God. It unveils to me who I am, helps me understand mankind better. A man named Farrar Fenton said, In the scriptures we have the only key that unlocks the mystery of the universe to man and the mystery of man to himself. God's word gives us what we need today. It provides guidance for us through this impossible journey of life. A man once said, if my compass always points to the north, I know how to use it. You get that. If you have a compass and you know it's going to the north, it's always going to go there. That's, that's where it points. You can figure out how to use it. But if it veers to other points of the compass, and I am to judge out of my own mind whether it is right or not, I am as well without the thing as with it. If my Bible is right always, it will lead me right. And as I believe it is so, I shall follow it. So if the Bible is, is pointing in the right direction all the time and we believe that, then we can use it. But if we take the word of God and we say, yeah, the word of God is like a broken compass. It points north most of the time, but sometimes we, we don't know when to trust it, and so we'll just make the judgment call when we do. Then we're in a lot of trouble. We must have this passion to, to, to know the word of God, to get into the word of God. Why? Because we need this compass for life. We need this place that's gonna, we're constantly going to turn to that's going to tell us truth. If we don't have the word, we're left to fend for ourselves, and we're in a lot of trouble. It is spiritual food for our hungry souls. We must esteem the word highly. We must desire it intensely. And finally, we must live the word daily. We must live the word daily. Peter is not content to leave us wondering what will happen when we esteem and desire the word. He tells us what should happen. Our lives should change. We should be transformed. Be holy for I am holy. Well, how do I do that? You get into the word of God. Love your brother with a sacrificial, unselfish love. How do you do that? You get into the word of God. Change your life. How does that happen? How do you, how do you get rid of the malice and the envy and the evil speaking and the, and the hypocrisies? How do you get rid of those things? You get into the word of God. You have the word of truth. It gave you life. The Bible is what, what gave you life. And now we must trust it for our lives. The New Testament is the best book that has ever known, the world has ever known or will ever know. Charles Dickens said that. Our need for it could not be greater and our desire for it should not be stronger. But if we have those things where we say God's word is good and I want to know it, but we don't, we miss this step of application, we miss this step of living the word daily, then we're in a lot of trouble. Jesus said, in Luke chapter eleven twenty eight, 28, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God 
and keep it. We must hear, sure, we must believe, we must obey, we must keep it. I fear that what we know of the word, we do not know, we do not do, and what we do not know of the word, we don't really care about. That's pretty sad if we're there. We need to desire the word and we need to obey it. I think that if we were to just start doing this, if we were to start saying, you know what, God, I've slacked off in this area, but I want to know your word. I want to obey it. I, I, I want to start. I think there'd be this like spiral effect where as you read and you get into God's word, then you would see how awesome it is. And as you see how awesome it is, you, you, you desire more of it. And as you desired it, you would start to be applying it to your life because you're just understanding the treasure that you have. But if we miss one of those steps, then the whole spiral upward, the whole chain is broken. I said earlier a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He's been called the Prince of Preachers. And I heard a story about um, a man who was writing a book about Charles Spurgeon this week. And I thought it was really interesting. The man's name is Kerry James Allen. And he wrote a book called Exploring the Mind and the Heart of the Prince of Preachers. And what this man did is, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible what this man on his own has, has got through. Um, <clears throat> Spurgeon preached about 6,000 sermons. And he was known for preaching fairly lengthy sermons, and he was known for speaking quite fast. And so 6,000 sermons translate to about 63 volumes of encyclopedia size, about 20 to 25 million words worth. And so this, this man took it upon himself to read everything Spurgeon had ever said, read all of his books, and then read the 25 biographies that people have written about him because he wanted to know everything he could about Spurgeon. And once he did that, he, he, he categorized it all and he got it all organized for people. And he wrote this book, Exploring the Mind and the Heart of the Prince of Preachers. You say, how does somebody ever take on a task like that? It just seems insurmountable. It seems crazy. I think sometimes we think this way. We think, I know the Bible's important. I know I should know it better than I do. But when I open it, I just struggle to get something from it. I just don't understand it like, like the pastors seem to, or like some other people, Christians I know seem to. When I open it, I just, I read it, and like half the things that I read, I just, I have no idea what it's saying. You know, I want to have the knowledge, but I don't really know where to start. Well, it was actually a quote by Spurgeon that encouraged this pastor, Carrie James Allen, to take on this task. And Spurgeon said, the way to do a great deal is to keep on doing a little. The way to do nothing at all is to be continually resolving that you will do everything. That was a really helpful quote. If you want to know how to learn God's word, how to get in, how to allow it to change your life, then just start every day by doing a little. If you want to accomplish a great deal, if you want to see a, a great change in your life, if you want the, the Spirit of God to, to get a hold of you, then every day get into God's Word a little. Every day learn a little. You will be amazed at what God does in your heart and life. And if you, conversely, 
want to do nothing and stay the exact same way that you are, then decide in your heart and mind that someday you're going to know it and then do nothing about it. A lot of people that do that, they go to altar and make decisions, they're going to change. You need food. You need food every single day. And if you don't have it, then you die. It's, it's really simple, right? And so let's desire the sincere milk of the word. This evening, as we close, I want to ask you about your heart. I want you to examine your heart. How does it feel toward the word of our creator and our savior? How does it feel toward the word of God? Are you in awe of them? Are you grateful? Do you esteem them highly? Do you desire to know them? Do you live what you already know? We must, as God's people, hear the truth. And we must obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening, Lord. I thank you for your word. Thank you for how it's a lamp into our feet and a 